want to welcome those of you who are here in the house with us as well as our online church family joining us via live stream. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Chris. I get to be one of your pastors here at New Life. Uh, super excited about the message today. We're going to be back in our Love and Light series through the first letter of John. And I want to start our time with a, a question. And I want you to kind of throw out some answers, right? So this is audience participation time. So the question is going to be on the screen for you in three, two, one. Bam, what's the number one way you can tell someone knows Jesus, all right? You've probably come across somebody, maybe a barista, your favorite coffee shop, you meet somebody in the neighborhood, whatever it is, and you're just like, man, just the way they talk, the way they interact, like there's something about them that clues me, tips me off, that they're probably a follower of Jesus. So for you, what's that thing? Just kind of shout out some answers. What's the number one way you know somebody knows Jesus? They watch VeggieTales. <laughs> they watch VeggieTales. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's one. That's one. All right. Was how they treat others. That's an, that's another great one. What would you, a WWJD throwing it back to the nineties when I was in high school? A WWJD bracelet. Yeah. What's what are some other ways you might be tipped off that someone's a follower of Jesus? They talk about Jesus. They're loving. Somebody in the 915 says they're fully clothed. I'm like, man, well, in Asheville, you know, you, you can't really take that for, for granted. Now, now, let me ask you this. What if we were to flip it? What if we were to go to downtown, right? What, what if we were to go to downtown streets of Asheville and just kind of turn the question a little bit and say, when you hear the word Christian, what's the first thing you think of? What do you think the answers would be that we got downtown Asheville on the streets? judgmental what else terrible what else yeah hypocrite would be some i think i think mostly we, we might get some positives but i think mostly we would get some some pretty negative feedback right they're judgmental they're narrow-minded you'd probably get the word bigot thrown around a little bit there's probably a thousand different answers that we would get depending on who we ask and where we ask the question what's the number one way that you know that someone follows jesus well the guy who knew Jesus best, the Apostle John, his best friend on planet Earth, the guy who actually wrote the book that we're studying, tells us unequivocally without hesitation or reservation that the number one way you know somebody knows God is by how they love. By how they love. Now, at first glance, that might be kind of a, a weird answer, kind of a surprising answer, especially if you're like me, you kind of grew up in the church, because maybe for you, you would have thought it would have been uh, like solid biblical theology. Like, that's how you know someone really knows Jesus, that they, they're sound theologically. Or maybe you would have thought uh, they're obedient to the commands of Jesus. Maybe that would be the number one marker. Or maybe they have really faithful church attendance. Or something. And listen, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. All, the things. all those things are actually really, really good. But John says, no, no, no. It's actually simpler than all of that. Here's how you know by how they love. Now, of course, John is just repeating what he heard from his friend Jesus, who said this in John 13 on the screens for you. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. Now, sometimes I've found as a father, and if you're a parent or if you work with kids, you've probably have experienced this um, as well, that oftentimes children have a deeper insight, especially into spiritual things, than we give them credit for. Have you noticed that? In fact, there's a group of researchers who posed the question, what is love, to a group of four to eight-year-olds. 
And I just wanted to read you some of their uh, responses to kind of kick off our, our time together this morning. So this is, this is Chrissy, age six, responding to the question, what is love? Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. That's true, isn't it? Especially if they're waffle fries from Chick-fil-A. That's really true. All right, Terry, age four. Love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Danny, age seven. Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure it tastes okay. (laughs) Sweet, right? Bobby, age five. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Hmm. Dang. Noel, age seven. Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, then he wears it every day. <laughs> Dudes just want to do that anyway. So, you know, that's just kind of a good excuse. Oh, you like this? I'm going to give it to you every day. Uh, May Ann, age four. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. Karen, age seven. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> I've been watching some Disney princess movies, I, I think, in her house. Jessica, age seven, you re- really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it, but if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. Hmm. Rebecca, age eight. Um, when my grandmother got arthritis... She couldn't bend over to paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. That good? Good stuff from the mouth of babes, right? And we've talked a lot about in this series how our culture really does a poor job of defining love. Our culture really misses the mark when it comes to understanding what love is. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I read you uh, the lyrics of a really uh, cringy love song from uh, Phil Collins about breathing in your boo's ear and all that kind of stuff, and I won't torture you with that again. But I do just want to remind you again that God offers a far deeper, more satisfying, more beautiful experience of love than our world ever could. In fact, I would argue that much of the dysfunction in our world and culture today comes from people who are looking for the love of God in all the wrong places. I don't know, maybe that's some of you today. Maybe you're here in the room, maybe you're watching online and you would just have to raise your hand and say, yeah, dude, that's me. Like I'm trying to fill my life with all of these other things outside of the love of God, whether it's relationship or popularity or sex or alcohol or drugs or whatever it is. And I'm trying to fill that void inside of me with all these other things. And Chris, here's the deal. I'm running into dead end after dead end. Nothing is working. And if that's you, if I'm talking to you this morning, you came in a great Sunday because John is going to tell us exactly what it is that we're missing in our hearts and our lives and the only thing that can fill that void that we're all ultimately searching for. Now, here's what you're going to notice about John's writing style if you haven't already. Unlike the apostle Paul, who also wrote much of the New Testament, Paul's a very linear thinker. Right? So if you read Romans or Ephesians or any of Paul's writings, it's a very, he kind of builds very sequential arguments, right? They kind of build on each other in a very logical kind of way, working its way to kind of like the zenith of his particular argument. John, particularly in this letter, is more of a circular writer, right? So think of a, uh, 
Think of a grand spiral case. So maybe you've been in a big house, a mansion. I was trying to remember, does a Biltmore house have a grand spiral case? It seems like kind of like they do. It's been a while. But, but just imagine that you're on this grand spiral case, and there's something at the center of this spiral case that's beautiful, right? And so it's maybe a, a very famous work of art or maybe like the world's largest diamond. And so you're just walking around this stair spiral case, and you're looking at the same thing, but you're getting all kinds of different angles and details as you walk around it further and further up. And this is exactly what the Apostle John is doing as he comes back again and again to the same handful of topics, not because he's getting old and senile, but because he knows this handful of topics is so important to the Christian life that we can only understand them fully when we come back to them again and again and again. Now, this, by the way, is the way that we train people for almost anything today, especially important things. So if you uh, go to medical school, right? We've got a few doctors in the house. If you go to medical school, you don't get one lecture on how to do heart surgery, and then they just turn you loose in the OR, right? That's not how it works. You study, and then you study it again, and then you study it some more, and then you watch uh, other doctors do it, and then you ask questions, and you take notes, and you practice on a cadaver, and you go back and study again, and you ask questions again. Same thing with pilots or anything else, really, right? We learn by repetition and reminder. We learn by repetition and reminder. John knows that, so he's circling back around again to the subject of, of love today, which we just hit on a couple of weeks ago. I'm really excited about sharing this text with you um, this morning. Really rich stuff. So let me invite you, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up in print, or if you have it on your phone, your device, open it up on an app and head for 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to hang out in verses 7 through uh, 12 today. And uh, let's pause just for a second and ask for the Lord's help as we uh, dive into his word. God, we come to you and... We are grateful that you haven't left us as orphans in this world just to kind of figure out, stumble our way through life and try to figure out who you are and who we are in light of who you are and what you want from our lives. God, you've actually, you've given us your word and you've given us the leadership of your spirit to guide us as your sons and daughters. And so I ask God that you would be with us now. We need to hear a word from you. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite your presence to be in this place, to be active, not only in this space, but to be active in our hearts and our minds right now as we engage with these ancient words that are very much alive and active. And we pray that you would do that in our hearts and our lives in such a way that we would walk out of here looking more and more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask and we pray. Amen. All right, 1 John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 7. We're going to start with just the, the, the first six words of that verse. Here's what it says on the screens for you. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. So John, as he so often does, begins this section of his letter with a term of endearments. Beloved. Do you know what beloved means? We don't use it very commonly, right, in modern day English. But what beloved means is loved one deeply loved one. And so you should know that John had pastored these people in these churches in the region of Ephesus, that's modern day Turkey, for many years. So he knows these men and women, these boys and girls. He loves them. This is his pastoral heart kind of being poured out in this letter. They've done some life together. 
They've been through a lot of things, through thick and thin. He wants to remind them both of who they are and what their identity in Christ is, that they are not abandoned. Though life is challenging, though they are suffering in some ways, he's reminding them of their core identity. They are beloved. They are loved by God, not abandoned, not forgotten, not insignificant in the kingdom of Jesus. They are beloved sons and daughters of the God of this universe. And so let me just remind you of the same thing this morning, Christian. No matter how bad your week was, no matter how poorly you've been treated over the last week, regardless of whether you woke up this morning feeling like a million bucks or you had to drag yourself out of the gutter just to get to church, I want you to know this truth and revel in it. You are deeply loved by God. That is who you are, Christian. You are deeply loved by God. I want you just to sit with that for a few seconds. I am loved by God. In fact, I want us to say that together, just to kind of set the stage this morning, that, that, that phrase that John just said, I am loved by God. So on the count of three, we're gonna say it, I am loved by God. One, two, three, let's say it. I am loved by God. Mm. I feel better already. Let's pray and go home. No, I'm just kidding. And because that is who you are, according to the Apostle John, he goes, because that's who you are, because that's your identity, beloved, chosen by God, loved by God, before you're anything else, before you're a Duke fan, Carolina fan, man, woman, whatever it is, before any of that, your identity is you are beloved by God. Because that's true, John goes, here's the command, here's the command, let us love one another like this. Let us love one another like that. So here's a, here's a big idea. I'm gonna give it to you in my best Alabama accent. This is what John is saying. Y'all get to loving one another now, you hear? That's what John is saying. Y'all get to loving one another now. That's the command that John is giving us. He's saying, hey, because you are beloved, because that is your identity, you are loved by God, you are chosen by God, here's what I want you to do. Love each other. Man, I want y'all to get to loving one another. Now, the type of love John is talking about here, we talked about this two weeks ago, is not the superficial lip service kind of love many of us have experienced, sadly, even in the church. It's not the kind of superficial lip service love that some of us even, sadly, have participated and given others, sadly, in the church. No, he's calling us to a deeper, much uh, sac more sacrificial love than, uh, than, than what most of us experience. The type of love, in fact, that the world would kind of look in on, they would witness the way that we're loving one another, and they would go like, man, that's weird. Like, that's odd, the way that they, they love each other. Like, that's, that's not normal. That's, that's radical. But they would also have to admit in the same breath, that's beautiful. See, John is calling us to what the Bible calls agape love. We talked about this a couple, uh, a couple of Sundays ago. Supernatural love, divine love. This is the kind of love that God loves us with, agape love. Now, if you missed this a couple weeks ago, here's my definition on the screens for agape love. Agape love is the selfless, relentless, unstoppable, unquenchable, deep love for another with no strings attached and nothing to gain for the one initiating the love relationship. And John kind of continues in this line of thought, and he says the call is love, love each other and love each other this way and then the question for us becomes why is that important john like i don't know about you but i look at that definition of love and i'm like i don't know that sounds kind of hard that that seems kind of inconvenient 
That seems super messy. That feels like it's going to be very time-consuming. So, John, why can't I just tell people, like, hey, dude, praying for you. Hey, man, love you. Why, why are you calling me to this deep, self-sacrificial, radical kind of love for others? And John's going to, he's going to tell us why. He kind of anticipates our question. He's going to give us not one, but three different reasons why it's important for us to love each other uh, in this way. So let's get back to the text. First John chapter four, going back to verse uh, seven. Beloved, let us love one another. That's where we left off. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, remember, one of the reasons that John is writing this letter to these churches in Ephesus is because of these false teachers known as the Gnostics who had kind of arisen inside of the church. They claimed to be Christians. In fact, John tells us, no, they're walking in spiritual darkness. And the, the kicker is they're actually trying to lead authentic Christians um, out of really following Jesus and believing other things, heresies. Now, I think this should serve as a sobering reminder, even for us as modern-day followers of Jesus living in Asheville in 2023 in the United States of America, that oftentimes we tend to, I know I'm guilty of this, we tend to think that the greatest threat to the church comes from outside the church. Don't we? I mean, I do. So we tend to think, well, maybe those anti-Christian groups out there, man, they're the biggest threat to the church, or, or who knows, maybe even the government's the biggest threat to the church. But listen, the reality is more often than not, the greatest threat to any church comes from within. More often than not, the threat to any church comes from within, not outside the church. Whether it's false teachers like the Gnostics, they were dealing with 1,900 years ago. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. For us, it's not the Gnostics. Today, for us, perhaps it's the prosperity gospel preachers. It's the affirmation gospel preachers. It's the soup kitchen gospel preachers. It's people that are taking and twisting the scriptures and they sprinkle just enough of the Jesus dust, the, the Christianese verbiage on there that it sounds kind of like the real thing, but underneath it all, it's actually a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so maybe for us, it's the same as John. It's kind of false teachers within the church, or maybe it's something far more simpler than that. Maybe it's, maybe it's people driving division in the church, but perhaps it's people, people gossiping in the church. Whatever it is, I promise you, if you do a post-mortem on dead churches nine out of ten times, the cause of death is not outside persecution, it's internal disease. Which is why, which is why the Apostle John is so keen on pressing us back into this idea of loving one another in radical ways the way that God loves us. In fact, John says the number one mark of a born-again Christian is a love relationship with God that is evidenced in how we love others. Now, John doesn't stop there. He kind of escalates things. He goes, he even goes as far as to say anyone who does not love like this, listen, he goes, they don't know God. Now, I think we could probably paraphrase what John is saying here like this. There is no such thing as a loveless Christian. Let me say that again. There is no such thing as a loveless Christian. That's what John is saying. 
And so if you meet someone who claims to be a Christian and would raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. Yes, I know Jesus. And yet they're just angry all the time and they're just critical of everything. They're never happy, never joyful. Man, I call these lemon suckers in the church, right? It just looks like they're sucking on a lemon. Mm, they're just walking around in life looking like they're angry or constipated all the time. And I think what John would say to us is that's probably, that's probably because they're not Christians, now, they may be religious. They may speak Christianese really well. They may be spiritual in nature. They may even be good church attenders, but I, I wanna say this, and I want you to hear me say this clearly, church family, you cannot meet the source of love and be loveless. You cannot meet the source of love and be loveless. And so the first reason why loving each other matters so much, I'm gonna put this on the screens for you, why loving one another matters. Love is, number one, number one, it's God's essence. That's what John says when he says God is love. It's God's essence. Love is not just something that God does. It's literally, guys, listen, it is literally who he is. God is the genesis of love. His DNA is love. He's the source of love. Love originates in God. It radiates from God. Love doesn't start with us. We didn't invent it. We didn't think it up. We didn't dream it up. It's from God from beginning to end. And so every time we experience love through the warmth of a close friend, say, or the embrace of a spouse after a long, hard day, or the beautiful laugh of a child, or the excitement of your dog when you come back home after a long day. Is there anything better as a picture of unconditional love than a dog when you get home after you've been gone all day, right? Man, I walk outside to clean my garage for 10 minutes. I walk in and my dog acts like I've been lost at sea for 10 years, man. She's just excited. She loves me, you know? All these expressions of love that we experience Experience and the human condition and experience are ultimately intended to be a glimpse of the true source of love for us. And so every time, guys, every time we experience one of those types of loves, it's meant to, it's meant to be a reminder. It's meant to be a signpost that points our hearts to the author of love. You see, our earthly experience of love was never meant to just terminate with a warm feeling in our hearts or our chest. But rather, these things were meant to, to give us a deep-seated sense of gratitude that would cause us to look upward and say, God, I see you. I see you as the author of all that is good and all that is holy and all that is love. Man, I know this is just a foretaste of who you are and what you have in store for me. Now, some have asked the question based on what we just read. Um, well, does this mean that a non-Christian is incapable of love. Is that, is that what John is saying? In fact, some have actually argued that. Is that, is that what John is saying here? Well, no, uh, I, I, don't, I don't believe that's the case. I know many non-Christians that seem to have really solid marriages, that love their kids well, that interact with their neighbors, treat others super well. This should come as no surprise to us who are followers of Jesus because the book of Genesis tells us that we are all made in the image of God, Right? Every single person born is born with what Genesis called, calls the Imago Dei. 
the image of God, the imprint, the divine imprint of the creator. And so every person who's ever been born is capable of love and compassion and mercy and justice because we are all, again, imprinted with that divine nature from our creator. But, but here, here, here's where you, we need to kind of drill down and understand what John is saying here, I think, is that the only people on planet earth capable of a particular kind of love Agape love, the God type of love, are those who are connected to the very source of love itself. Now, I said this a couple of weeks ago, we are in our own strength and our own flesh, totally and completely unable to love one another in this way. Now, you know this, I, I know this, I cannot, I cannot love you with this kind of self-sacrificial love in my own strength. Man, I cannot, even, I cannot even willpower my way to do this, right? If I wake up and I'm like, oh, man, I read that in 1 John chapter 4. Man, I'm going to love people with that definition of agape love today. I'm just going to do it. That will last maybe 30 minutes for me. Maybe you're disciplined. Maybe you get 45 minutes out of it, right? <laughs> and then we're cycled right back into the whole deal, right? Now, the reason that I, there's a couple reasons I can't love you that way in my own strength. Number one, just being honest, I'm too selfish. And if most of you are honest, you would have to admit you are too. Because what are, what are our thought patterns look like throughout the day, right? It, how does this affect me? How is this gonna influence my life? How does this benefit me? What is this gonna cost me? Like our, our thoughts just kind of circulate in a very self-focused, self-centered way. So I can't love you that way in my own strength because at my core, I'm too selfish, and the second reason I can't love you this way in my own strength is because you're too annoying, right? So between my selfishness and you being annoying, it's impossible. And I know that I'm likely too annoying for you to love me this way as well in your own strength. And yet, watch this. This is what John is saying. John is saying, in Christ, in Christ, we now have the supernatural power to love one another just as God loves us. Now, that's, that's mind-blowing. That in Christ, as we plug into the source of love, we now get the supernatural power to love one another just like God loves us. This is insane. So even when it's hard, even when it's messy, even when it's costly, even when it's inconvenience, because we are connected to the source of love through Jesus Christ, empowered by his Holy Spirit, now his love can flow through us to one another in a super transformational, life-giving way. I appreciate the way that pastor and theologian John Piper puts it. His, this quote will be on the screens for you. Piper writes this, Love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light. Fire gives heat because it is heat. And God loves because he is love. So the first reason that we're commanded to agape love one another, which is very hard and very radical, is because love is God's essence. That is who he is. And if we claim to know him, then we have to love the way that he loves. That's what John is getting at here. He continues on. That's the first reason. He's about to give us reason number two. First John 4, starting in verse 9, John writes this. And this is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest. That just means uh, made visible, put on display. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the the satisfaction, the absorption of our sin for our sins, the propitiation for our sins. Now, herein lies the whole message of the scriptures and the entire story of humanity. So if you're here with us this morning in the room watching online and you're not a Christian, Maybe you're just kind of exploring the faith. You came with a a friend or someone who invited you, or maybe you just stumbled onto the live stream. I'm happy that you're here, but here's, here's the whole deal in a nutshell. We are all, according to the scriptures, we're born as sinners. Now, if you're not familiar with what that word is, sin is, is just a word that means choosing our way over God's way. And don't we all do that every single day of our life? Don't we choose our way over God's way? That's what it means to be a sinner. Like none of us were born with a bent towards holiness or a bent towards obedience to God. In fact, I would argue that all of us were born with a proclivity to rebel against God. And because of that, because of our sin, we were all, every last one of us, separated from a perfect and holy God by our sin deserving of eternal separation from him and yet the message of scripture is that because God is love while we were yet unlovable God sent his son to pay for our sins and buy us back to make us his own this is the good news of the gospel this is God's greatest gift to us his love drove him to come on a rescue mission So that when we had no way to climb the mountain to get to him, he came off the mountain to bring us home to himself. And that's the second reason why loving each other with an agape, radical love matters so much. Not only is love God's essence, love is God's greatest gift to us demonstrated in Jesus himself. It's God's greatest gift to us through Christ. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is In John chapter 3, John chapter 3 opens uh, the scene with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a a ruler of the Pharisees, and so he was uh, a religious leader. He was a Bible scholar. Um, By all accounts, he was a good man. He was somebody in that society. If Nicodemus walked down the streets of Jerusalem, people would have known who he was. People would have been whispering. Maybe kids would have been trying to get his autograph. And yet, John's gospel tells us that at night, he kind of sneaks his way through the darkness, sluices his way, and he finds Jesus because he wants to have a conversation with him without anybody seeing that he's talking to Jesus. And he finds Jesus in the darkness, and he says, Jesus, listen, I, I know that you're from God because nobody can do the things that you do unless they're from God. Man, like, I I see the miracles that you perform. I see the authority with which you teach and preach. Like, there's something about you that's different than all the religious guys we've ever had. And I think what he's after here is like, man, is this guy the Messiah? Right, the one that all the prophets have been writing about for like hundreds of years. Like, is this the dude? Is this this God wrapped in human flesh? Is Is this the guy? And Jesus, in response, just drops this massive truth bomb on our boy Nico and says, Listen, Nico, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Mm. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will never see my kingdom. In other words, Nicodemus, and some of you need to hear that this morning, what, what Jesus is saying here. Nicodemus, all of your religion, 
all of your moralism, all of your spiritualism, all of your being a good person, none of that Nicodemus will get you to the Father. You can't work your way to God. You have to experience a new birth. And then Jesus, if you read the text, he goes on to explain to Nicodemus that there are actually two births. There's a physical birth and there's a spiritual birth, and it's only the spiritual birth that actually awakens us to real life in this world. And then Jesus says maybe the most famous words in the entire Bible in John 3, 16, on the screens for you, Jesus says this to him, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Because God is love, he gave us his greatest gift, Jesus. So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Listen, y'all. God didn't send us a messenger with good news, even though that would have been enough. God didn't just send us an angel with the good news, even though that would have been enough. God sent his only son. And so I just want to say this morning, friend, if you're here and you have not received the gift of God's love, maybe you're like Nicodemus. Maybe you're religious. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you can quote John 3, 16 with the best of them. But you've never experienced the spiritual rebirth that Jesus was telling Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. My prayer for you is that you would receive that gift of love today. This is God's greatest gift to you. Jesus in your place. His death for your life. This is an incredible truth. Love is both God's essence and it's his greatest gift to us through Jesus Christ so that we might live and experience abundant life. All right, it gets even better. Last little bit here, 1 John 4, starting in verse 11. He continues on, he says, beloved. So he's kind of finishing this section with the same word he opened it with, right? He's reminding them again and again of what their identity is, right? Hey, I know your life is hard. I know you're going through some persecution. I know you got these false teachers trying to lead you astray. I know you're confused. I know life is hard. I know things are really difficult right now, but remember who you are again. You're beloved. You're chosen. You are loved deeply by God. So he's just kind of just pouring this identity on them again and again. You are beloved. So he starts again. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So he's circling back, repeating the command he opened with. Let's love each other because we have received so much love from the Father. Verse 12, watch this. No one has ever seen God. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there are a couple times where people would get glimpses of the glory of God and it would almost kill them or blind them, right? Like nobody could see God fully in his glory. If we did, we would just evaporate into thin air. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now I could preach a whole nother 45 minute sermon right there on verse 11. Uh, I'm, I'm not gonna do that because I don't want you to hate me. We don't have time to do that. But here's the bottom line. Our love, our love makes an invisible God visible to the world around us. I'll say that again. Our love makes an invisible God visible to the world around us. And that's the last truth. Why loving one another matters is love is not only God's essence, it's not only God's greatest gift to us, it's actually God's display through us to the world of himself. I love the way Paul in Ephesians chapter two, writing, by the way, to the same group of Christians, the same group of churches in Ephesus. This is what he says to them. For we are his, his workmanship. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I've told you guys this before, but every time I read it, it just blows my mind. That word workmanship is the Greek word poema. Now, can you guess which of our words we get from that Greek word poema? Any guesses? 915 nailed it. Where y'all at? 11. Where, what, what's the word we get from that? Poem. That's right. So what, what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, Christian, we are in a real sense God's poem to the world through our good works, starting with, according to John, the way that we love one another. Our lives ought to serve as poetry in motion in a dark and dying world. It's been said, this is a quote by uh, Rodney Smith, 1800s evangelist. I'll put it on the screens for you. I love this quote. There are five gospels. You maybe have heard there are four. There are actually five, he says. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. Most people will never read the first four. Is that good? There are five gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Christian. Most people you know will never read the first four, but they will watch your life, Christian. They will watch how you love one another. So let me just ask you, are they seeing in you the poetry of God's love or something less than that? Because understand this, you were created to display the glory of your creator to the world around you. And it's only as you discover that purpose and begin to walk in that purpose that you discover the abundant life that Jesus promised in the Gospels to his followers. So I'll leave you with this question this morning. How's your love life? Of course, I'm not talking about your romantic love life. I mean, do you have a genuine love relationship with God? And if you're here and you're not a Christ follower, I would just invite you to enter into that kind of relationship with your creator today before we leave this place in space. And if you're here and you are a part of the family, you're a part of the family of God, you're a follower of Jesus, let me just invite you to examine how you're loving others right now. And maybe ask yourself the question, how might I elevate my love game this week for the glory of the one who gave it all to redeem me and make me his own. And church, I wanna invite you now to stand with me. Go ahead and stand to your feet. We're gonna read from 1 Corinthians together and then we're gonna move back into a time of worship. And I just wanna invite you as we read these letters from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago, I wanna invite you to speak these words out loud with me. So y'all don't leave me hanging. Y'all say it out loud like you mean it, all right? 1 Corinthians starting in verse one. If I speak in the tongues of man and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. God, we come to you. And we are so grateful that your essence is love, that you don't just love. It's not just a part of who you are. It's not just something you do. It's actually your DNA. You are love. Outside of you, there is no such thing as love. So thank you for being a God who loves, a God who comes near. Thank you that you're not some distant God just watching from afar with no care for your creation, but you're intimately involved in the details of the lives of your sons and your daughters because you are love. You're a loving heavenly father. And thank you, God, for the greatest gift that demonstrates your love, Jesus Christ in the flesh coming into this world, this busted up mess that we created for ourselves to live a perfect, sinless life on our behalf and dying a painful, brutal, torturous sinner's death, the one that we deserve to die on our behalf and then rising again to give us the resurrected abundant life now and forever. God, we could never thank you enough. So would you help us now as recipients of this love to go out and love each other in such a way that our lives would be poetry in motion, that people could look at our lives and say, that is different, that is godly, that is divine. Those are some weird Christians, man, but they got something I need. And I pray, God, for the person in this room, the person watching online, man, who maybe has not crossed that threshold of faith, that person who is maybe religious like Nicodemus, maybe grew up in church, maybe attends church, maybe knows all the right answers, but their heart is distant from you, that today would be the day that they would surrender their lives to you say, God, I, I realize now that I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you because of my sin, because you're perfect and you're holy. You can't be in the presence of my sin. Like I know now, I understand the only way to get to you is through the bridge of Jesus Christ. And so I want to surrender my life now to him. I want to turn from my sin. I want to turn from doing life my way. I want to follow Jesus and I want you to give me your Holy Spirit to guide me and lead me until I meet you face to face. And again, for those of us who know you, God, help us live this out. Help this not just be something that we file away in our minds. Forget about as we drive to our favorite restaurant or go home to watch Netflix or whatever it is, God. I pray that we would ruminate on this truth this week. I pray that you would drive this truth deeply into our souls by your Holy Spirit this week. Constantly remind us that our call, because we have been loved extravagantly, is to love one another extravagantly. Help us do that well, not for our glory, for your glory, King Jesus. We ask and we pray in his name. Amen.